I'm going through the Westminster Confession uh, uh, starting last Wednesday night, and I did the chapter 1 on the, the, the Scriptures as the Word of God. And I remembered, if you remember I said last week, that I had said during my church history that I was going to do uh, a couple of lessons, one on the textual evidence for the New Testament, and then another one, Lord willing, it'll be next week. I think it's next week. I think I'm here. I think I am. Um, on the, the formation of the canon. And so I'm going to do that tonight. And uh, this has lesson two. It's part of a, another seminar I've done. But tonight we're going to look at, do we have a reliable text? When you open your Bible and you read your English Bible, most of you, I suppose, what is the connection between that and what the actual apostles wrote? And how do we know what the connection is between them? This has been a fertile field for nefarious attacks to undermine the authority and veracity of Scripture in our lifetimes. And so let's, 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 let's fear not. Let's take a look at the evidence. I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, Moses Silva, my old professor of Westminster Seminary, says if Christians were familiar with the vicissitudes of all ancient literature and then heard about the New Testament transmission problems, how the old text got to us, They'd be amazed at how the New Testament testimony is very, so very, very much richer and more reliable than other literature. You know, nobody asks the questions when they read Homer. We're going to date Homer about 900 B.C., something like that. So, you know, early Book of Kings uh, and uh, in terms of timing. And nobody asks the question, how do we know what we're reading in our Penguin Classic? Actually, it was written by Homer. What copies do we have? Well, let's look at some of the evidence. Epictetus, the first and second century, second century philosopher, he wrote eight discourses. We only have evidence of four of them. Of those four, the earliest manuscript is from 1100 AD. So here we have a Greek philosopher who's writing in the first century. And nobody, and by the way, nobody's doing PBS specials saying nobody even knows. Who knows if he even existed? No, no, but, the, but the, actually the oldest copy that we have is from the 12th century. All other copies derive from that 1100 AD copy. Aeschylus, the 4th century BC Greek uh, tragedy, tragedian. Uh, the earliest manuscript we have is from 1000 AD. And nobody argues about it. I, I don't have it up here, but I think Julius Caesar's Gallic campaigns. 900 AD is the oldest copy. No, nobody's going, who knows if there was a Julius Caesar. Homer's not too bad. Uh, 2,500 ancient or early medieval texts. The earliest is 400 BC. Not too bad. Let's look at the New Testament. Can, can you see it? Yeah, you can see it. Uh, there are over 5,700 ancient and early medieval manuscripts. Their early medieval is going to be 6th century, something like that. The entire New Testament is well attested. There's no gaps at all. We have over 100 manuscripts from the 2nd to the 5th century A.D. Now, the New Testament's written from about 49 A.D., Galatians. Uh, you can make an argument for James as well. Uh, it's going to be the earliest one, 49-50 till 95 A.D. So we have uh, over 100 manuscripts, actual manuscripts from the 2nd century, that's the hundreds, through the 400s. Uh, there are also numerous ancient translations that are not in Greek, Latin versions of them, Syriac versions, Coptic, that's Egyptian. Uh, counting all versions, there are over 24,000 ancient and early medieval New Testament manuscripts. That's a lot. 
Not to mention, then you have the thousands of quotations from the Greek and Latin fathers. Actually, I'll get to this later, but in 95 AD, Clement of Rome, he's the presbyter of Rome, not the bishop of Rome. He's an elder, and he writes from the session of the Roman church, which was a Presbyterian church, to the church in Corinth, Clement's first letter to the Corinthians, 95 AD. That's pretty early. He's quoting the New Testament. And so we have attestation for what's in your Bible from ancient manuscripts that go all the way back to the first century. And, and you think of all the, all the ancient fathers, that's going to be true. Uh, the, uh, Matthew Harmon says the New Testament is the best attested collections of writing from the ancient world. Hands down, it is not even close. Well, let's hear the other side of the story. That is the looming face of Bart Ehrman. Who's heard of Dr. Bart Ehrman? He's the academic star of anti-Bible, you know, mockery. He's the guy who does PBS specials the week of Easter, right? And here's the question. Can we trust that we possess the actual words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, John in our New Testament? The answer is no. Let me quote him. He says, it's one thing to say that the originals were inspired, but the reality is that we don't have the originals. So saying they were inspired doesn't help us very much unless I can reconstruct the originals. That is the question. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's true, by the way. But that's because we have so many copies. (laughs) That makes a big rhetorical impact when he says that, right? Let's look at it. He says this in misquoting Jesus. What can we say about the total number of variants known today? So we have all the manuscripts. How many differences are there? Scholars differ. Some say 200,000. Some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 variants in your New Testament. This proves that the Bible is a human book from the beginning to an end. The Bible, he argues this way, very rhetorically, carefully, uh, there's virtually no ability to say that there's a connection between your English Bible and what the apostles wrote. Well, let's examine this. Let's start with some of the actual evidence from the Old Testament. Now, we start with Papyri 46 because it's housed in the graduate library of, uh, it's going to touch your hearts as well as mine, of the University of Michigan. I was at a Michigan football game, and uh, it was raining. I was in the Diag. You know where the Diag is. And, uh, and the boys and I ran into the great grad library, and I turned the corner, and I'm staring at that Page that the Ephesians 1 folio of the, and I said to my sons, it's the Chester Beatty papyrus. They're like, dad has lost his mind. And my nose was that far from that. Uh, papyrus 46, it's, uh, contains, it's more than just this page. It's actually, uh, 86 pages. Uh, it, it contains, it's a collection of the Pauline letters. It's dated from 175 to 225 A.D. Now, it comes, as so much of this does, it comes from Egypt. It has something to do with the climate, allowing the preservation. It also has to do with mummies. This one doesn't come from a mummy. Some of the other ones do. But basically, they would take the paper out of the trash bins, and they would use them to mummify people, and then we have them that way. 
This one comes from the ruin of a church in Cairo. It's from the 1920s. It's 11 inches by 6.3. It's dated by paleography. What that means is that there are people who are experts in this field that they date ancient documents, not just Bible documents, ancient documents by all kinds, you know, the the type of papyrus that's used, uh, the thickness of it the way the letters were formed. And, and so it's an inexact science. And so they'll usually give you about a 50-year rough window. Sometimes we'll agree with them, sometimes we're not. But they're going to date the, the, uh, the papyri 46 at 175 to 225. Some have argued for a date as early as 80 AD. Nobody really accepts that. It can be very plausibly argued to 125. But, but no matter what, Well, the Apostle Paul writes these letters. By scholastic standards, we have a copy from 100 years later, 110 years later. There's nothing like that. We don't have, you know, Aristotle written a copy from 200 B.C. And here is the, actually, it's it's called an unctual, actually, this is a minuscule style, and I was really excited because I was able to, because it's a different, the letters work, there's no spaces is one of the issues because they didn't have a lot of paper. And this is papyrus. And so uh, there's no space between the word, but you can just, re- and, you know, Paulos, Apostolos, Christu, Yeso, you know, and, and you're reading right across it. Now, we don't know. I mean, what, how many copies, let's say it's 170. So this has to go, this is, a, this is Ephesians 1. Paul writes that, writes Ephesians 1 in Rome. I think we're going to date Ephesians about 62, uh, maybe 63 A.D. So it has to get from Rome, it has to be copied, it has to make its way down to Egypt. Is it a fifth copy? Is it a third copy? I don't know. But don't tell me that we have no way, no access to what Paul wrote when we have the Chester Beatty Papyrus 46. Uh, uh, that's one piece of evidence. Now, let's get more impressive. There it is, the John Ryland's Fragment, Papyrus 40, 52. It has seven lines on the front. It has seven lines on the back from John 18. Uh, and you can just see it right there. It's three and a half inches by two and a half inches. It's dated, I think, to probably 100 to 150 A.D., I think 125 is the consensus date. Now, this did come off a mummy uh, out of a grave pit in Egypt. So, the Apostle John, he writes John late now. 80 AD for John? Maybe 85? Let's just, let's just stick with 80. Maybe 75, maybe 80. Uh, it has to get copied. It has to be worn out so that it's thrown away. And it ends up in a trash heap in Egypt, and the, the, the paleographers dated at about 125. So we have a fragment of an original copy? A, I don't know, a second copy? Uh, uh, that is incredible uh, attestation. That only gives you a little bit of the text, but it shows you it's a, these are connections between our Bibles and the Apostles. I'm very impressed with Papyrus 75. It's the Gospel of Luke and John. There's parts that are missing. Uh, I, I try to make a big... That, that's like a professional job. 
We're going to date this about 175, maybe 200 A.D. Remember, this is a persecuted church. This, this version is actually corrected. This was a semi-professional scribe who did this. Uh, most of the Gospel of Luke, and it, it was originally, we know it, it was probably a gospel book. And the parts that we have left are most of Luke, most of John. There's a middle section missing. Uh, and this is very recent. This is, I'm sure you know all about 7Q5. Uh, Q is the Qumran cave. Seven means cave number seven. This is document number five. By the way, you know the story, the fascinating story of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I, I didn't know his name was Abraham until Jeff Early told me today. The little boy who throws the rock in the cave and hears a clink. And that's the Q1 cave that has the Q1 Isaiah scroll dated to 300 BC. It's a whole other subject. Well, cave seven is an interesting because everything in cave seven is Greek. Uh, unlike, you know, cave one's all, all Hebrew. It's an interesting story. Uh, and they're still, I don't know if you know, they're still processing it. You know, they, they haven't gone through all of it. And now they have new techniques to, to deal with damaged portions. So they you know, and so this is like 2013, uh, 7Q5, the Mark fragment, uh, makes it, in fact, it's not made it to light. Uh, this has not been published. They've not, so we're getting leaks on it, but it's just interesting. Uh, now, what's interesting is that the Qumran community dissolved in 68 A.D. If you know your ancient history, A.D. 70, what happened in A.D. AD 70? In, in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so that's, that's why you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Essene communities being destroyed, and they hide their stuff in the caves. So it would, it would be reasonably argued that the latest date you would reasonably place for the Qumran scrolls would be 68 A.D. Well, we're going to date Mark at 64 A.D.? I'm just giving you the evidence that we have. This is a small fragment of Mark 117. Uh, uh, Let's say it's actually, let's say this cave uh, was put in 10 years later. I don't know. So we'll say 78 A.D. We have documentary evidence of the Gospel of Mark in the records of a community that was destroyed in 68 AD. It's actually going to argue for an earlier dating of Mark, I think. Uh, very interesting. Well, let's talk about Constantine von Tischendorf. You know him by his uh, movie persona, Indiana Jones. Uh, in the 1800s, European biblical scholarship was fascinated by the opportunity, empire does this for you, to go into Egypt and, and uh, Israel and to get their hands on ancient texts. And Tischendorf's a brilliant linguist, and he's, his, his facility uh, uh, with the ancient texts is really high, and he's, a, he's an aristocrat, he's got time and money. And so he's a student in Leipzig in 1845, and kind of for his dissertation, he decides to visit, that is the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. 1845, he takes a camel to get there. So his motivation is with him, and he has all these adventures along the way. He is the inspiration loosely for Indiana Jones. Well, the story is this. He's, 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 they're, 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 Interacting with him, they don't have a lot of outsiders. By the way, the monastery of St. Catherine was founded in the 6th century. And he finds a trash basket that he realizes, because it's what he does, like a PhD student on this, that's got ancient manuscripts, ancient papyri and vellums. And they're using them to kindle the fires. 
And he's like, stop, 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 stop. Now, by the way, the Monastery of St. Catherine deeply resents this story and denies it today, but I think it is what it is. And he goes, he, he scarfs him, he stuffs him in his shirt, and he goes back to Europe. He had 44 pages, 43, and he published them. And they were all Old Testament. They were, uh, they were copies of the LXS, LXX. That's the third century BC Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was like um, Joshua to First Chronicles. So he pumps, so he actually comes back twice. He comes back in 1859. And he presents to the abbot his copy, and he did it because he, sus- he was goading him, because he suspected they had really high-quality stuff there. He was correct. And he shows up to the abbot, and he goes, you're not going to believe what I've got, but this is like the most accurate ancient Bible available, which it wasn't, but it's his argument. And the abbot goes, oh, smarty-pants European, bring, go open my closet. And he brings out Codex Sinaiticus, which we'll get to. Uh, uh, another word for Codex Sinaiticus is the Word of God. I tease, but Codex Sinaiticus has a huge effect on our Bibles today. Uh, now, he tries to buy it. But they're not, they realize they can get more than what he can offer. Oh, the, the way they finally get their hands on Codex Sinaiticus, it's like 10 years later, the abbot dies. They need to replace the abbot. But there's a political tussle or who's going to be the abbot. And the faction that won needed the support of the Tsar of Russia, Eastern Orthodoxy, to support it. So Tischendorf, a German uh, noble, goes to the Tsar and he goes back and he has it arranged as part of the quid pro quo for their faction's man to be made the abbot. The price tag was that they would make a gift of the abbot's personal Bible to the Tsar. Guess what? It never ends up with the Tsar. He makes a copy and sends it. The Tsar was in on it. That's how Tischendorf. So this is you're like going typical European exploitation. You know, you're right, but it worked. And there it is, Codex Sinaiticus. Ah, uh, 694 pages on vella of the whole Bible and a fair amount of the Apocrypha too on vellum parchment. Now, Tischendorf argues, I think it's really not easily refuted, that Codex Sinaiticus, its own name, a Codex is book, a complete book of the Bible. Um, and look at the quality. I mean, that's a professional job. Well, yeah, because it was done under the supervision of, Ces- of, of Eusebius of Caesarea around the year 340. What happened was Constantine the Great is the Roman emperor who gets converted, 312, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And then when they're, you know, as part of the whole Knight Council of Nicaea thing, he says, let's get all the best manuscripts we have, and we're in, and Eusebius supervises a scriptorum where they make 50 imperial copies of the Old and New Testaments. And uh, this is one of them. Uh, so this is, we have, it's actually in, in Jerusalem now. The Codex Sinaiticus is a 325-ish complete Bible uh, done in the best possible way uh, under the supervision of this top Christian scholar at the, at the very end of the age of persecution. Now, this is not a collection of the physical writings of the apostles. But let's just say the Ehrman thesis is looking bad. I mean, this is incredible. And I will say that, you know, when, it, when, they, when they issue the Greek, I have a Greek New Testament. And when they decide on, you know, which, you know, which 
it is a, there's a difference between versions. Which version is going to get the precedence? Uh, Codex Sinaiticus wins most of the time. The relationship between our Bibles and Codex Sinaiticus is very high. Praise the Lord. Let's not forget Codex Vaticanus. Also, this is, this is another one of the Bibles from Constantine Scriptorum right after the Council of Nicaea. 759 pages of the whole Bible on vellum parchment. What's funny about this was it was known in the 16th century because uh, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam was trying to collect these things and, and the curator of the Vatican Library was kind of, bear in mind the, the Reformation was going on so they're not really helping each other. But when Erasmus is putting together his Textus Receptus, the, the, the Vatican's library going, you know, your, your work is, you know, we got the real stuff. So we've known it was there, but it was not until Tischendorf found Sinaiticus that they wanted in on the action and they, they released Vaticanus. There, Vaticanus, uh, this is the, the lower picture. Look at the quality of it. That's a page from Vaticanus. Uh, there are five ancient complete codices, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, Ephraemi, and Bezai. The top one is a page from Alexandrinus. Uh, professional uh, versions of the Bible from the age of, of the early church. There, there it is, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, other important figures. I mentioned earlier that... Uh, you have people starting with 95 AD, Clement of Rome, but then you get Ignatius, dies 118. You have Polycarp, dies 130, 135. And they have writings, they're writing to fellow Christians in which they're quoting mainly Paul, but also the Gospels. Now, why is that important? Because the argument is, remember, that there's no relationship between the Bible that you have and what the apostles wrote. Well, if there can be shown that there's a correspondence between what you have and what Polycarp wrote in 130, we have just pushed that back 1,900 years, haven't we? Yes, in fact, we have. Polycarp, we know, was a disciple of a man named John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, he was evangelized by the evangelist. Uh, and so through the apostolic father, there's nothing else like this. Uh, so I want you to have confidence in the physical, textual connection between your Bibles and the actual writings of the apostles, in some respects, this is as impressive as the, um, as the actual findings we have of the manuscripts. The writings of the apostolic fathers, if, if what they're quoting corresponds to what's in your version of Philippians, Polycarp loved Philippians, uh, or John, then that argument has just lost 1,900 years. Uh, John Chrysostom is very interesting. Now, he's a 4th century, the great preacher of Antioch and then Constantinople. Thousands of published sermons and letters. Now, what's valuable about John is his use of the Greek. And, so, and when John quotes it, so if, let, let's say you have a variant. Let's say there's a variant between Codex Bezai, and I'm going to look at some of the variants, and Codex Alexandrinus. It's going to be very interesting which, when, when, John, when John Chrysostom quotes that text to see which, which one he used. And it, it doesn't give you absolute certainty, but you go, oh, 
So we, we so you can see where the scribal error was because we have somebody from that time who's actually preaching on the text. Now, one of the funnier episodes, a very I think it's kind of informative about this, is Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus is the early 16th century, right before the Reformation. He's a Renaissance scholar, and he wants to reform, biblically reform the Catholic Church, and he ends up being an enemy of Luther over doctrinal matters. But one of the things Erasmus was doing, one of the great scholars of his day, 1500, is he is putting together a Greek version of the New Testament. Now, bear in mind, prior to the Protestant Reformation, it was the Latin Vulgate. Ah, uh, and one of the big things that caused the Reformation was the availability of Greek manuscripts. And, you know, guys like Luther are going, hey, that's not what the Vulgate says, you know. Uh, for instance, when John says we are justified through faith, the Vulgate says we make penance through faith. Well, actually make penance is not the right translation of the Greek word dikaio. Uh, and so Rotterdam's a big figure. And she's kind of an interesting guy. He publishes the first modern, complete Greek New Testament in 1516, based entirely on texts that were scribal copies that are from the 13th and 14th century. You're going, that's not that impressive. No, it's actually not. So Erasmus has copies that were, you know, they were, co- they were written in the 14th and 15, 13th and 1500s. Uh, doesn't even have the whole New Testament. So what do you do? You're trying to put together a Greek New Testament. You don't have enough manuscripts to cover the whole thing. He back translates from the Latin into the Greek. In fact, a fair amount of, there's certain portions of Revelation where the, that Erasmus's Greek version is a translation into Greek from the Latin Vulgate by Erasmus because he had to do it that way. Uh, he works on it over a number of years, but he can't remember the changes he's made. Now, you're going, why is this important? Because his work, his final version, is called the Textus Receptus. Who knows what the Textus Receptus is? Under the King James-only theory, it is the Word of God. Now, here's where we want to be careful about these things. And so here we have a defensive, conservative, protect-the-Bible stance, the Textus Receptus, which is the basis of the King James Version. So the King James-only approach is one to say the Texas Receptus is the official version. Some of it's translated by Erasmus actually pretty well, too. Out of the Latin, into the Greek. Well, let's get to the Johannine Coma. Comma. John, 1 John 5, 7. Now, some of you, and by the way, I love the King James Bible, but it's not uniquely the Word of God. Uh, for instance, 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That is called the Johannine comma. And it's been, and if you see a tax on the NIV or the ESV, more modern versions, they'll often say they deny the Trinity. You're like, how do they say it denies the Trinity? Because the ESV does not have this verse in it. So why does the ESV not have 1 John 5, 7 in it? Because it's not in the Bible is the answer. The, the real story behind that is that it, that somebody had, it had been put into late manuscripts. I'm talking about 14th century manuscripts to defend. It was a scribal edition to defend the, the Trinity. And Erasmus actually says, I refuse to put it. He's being pressured to put it in. 
He says, I refuse to put that in the Texas Receptus because it's not in the Bible. And they came to him and they, he, was, he was being pressured. He says, if you can show me a single Greek manuscript that has it in there, I'll include it. Well, he should have said ancient Greek manuscript because he did. And we know they did this. They went and they had somebody copy a version of it. And then they gave it to him and, and so he put it in. So here's the kind of thing we want to be careful about. We're being told, some of you have been told, that you know these, these guys like Rick Phillips are liberals and they deny the Trinity because they deny, they don't have in their Bibles, and when I preached First John, I did not preach this verse. It is found in zero ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And so it's a lesson in being careful. Well, let's look at the problem of errors. Oh, Bart Ehrman made a big splash when he told you there are, in those manuscripts, there are between 200,000 to 400,000 variants, scribal differences in the manuscripts. The impact that makes on you. Well, the reason for that problem is the sheer number of them. When you have 24,000 texts, and these are, many of them are long texts, that means about 16 variants per text. Suddenly, that number is not so impressive. The overwhelming majority of these variants are spelling mistakes, differences in word order, the use of synonyms that have no effect on the meaning. Less than 1% of all textual variants have any conceivable impact on the meaning of a verse at all. Oh, we didn't say that. Let me give you a really big one. Here is a scribal variant that really is trouble. And we'll see if it rocks your faith. Romans 5.1, the truth is we don't know exactly what Paul wrote. I agree with that. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or did Paul say, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, let us have peace with God. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that the most ancient manuscripts are all written in all caps. It's called an unctual, the Chester Beatty manuscripts, all caps. And so the, in, in the Greek language, the letter Omicron is an O. The letter Omega is a little Omega sign, right? When you capitalize it, they both are Omegas. So when Paul writes, I have it here, the, the Greek echomen versus echomen, if you write that word in capitals, it's spelled the exact same way if it's in the indicative or in the subjective. Now, I think context-wise, I think Paul is using it in the indicative. It's, it's echomen. Uh, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm sure your Bible says that. It has a little note. It says, could be, let us have peace with God. Did I just change any doctrines of the Christian faith? Now, that's like one of the worst of them all. Did I just rock your doctrine of Christ? Did that mean, what? what? No doctrine. I mean, so I admit, because the early manuscripts were in all caps, it's, and it's not a problem with scribal transmission. It's the fact that it's all caps. So we can't tell the letters are the same in all caps, though they would be different if it was not all caps. It's not, we don't know for sure. Your English Bible does not know whether Paul meant, you don't know certainly, let us have peace with God or we have peace with God. That's like the worst one. (laughs) 
So, I mean, I'll share with you personally, my faith is not rocked by this revelation. I have not, my doctrine of Christ has not been overturned. Let, let's see. Oh, that's another, oh, that's, there's another big one. Luke 2.33. This is the birth narrative of Jesus. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, there are variants, and it's hard to know which variant is correct. The other variant doesn't say his father and his mother. It says Joseph and his mother. And I admit, we really don't know which one Luke wrote. Did Luke write Jesus' father and his mother, or did he write Joseph and his mother's? Now, you may point out to me that his father is Joseph. So on a textual level... That's a bad variant. It's like one of the worst. We really don't know which Luke wrote, except that we know who it is either way he wrote it. This does not uh, overturn Christianity. This is not a devious suppression of truth. Let's look at the assessment of the accuracy of our New Testament. We do not have the original manuscripts. But God has provided an overwhelming and compelling testimony to the apostolic text through the manuscripts that we have, ancient manuscripts of the entire Bible. There is no other ancient document that is even in the same ballpark, well, except for the Old Testament, uh, than the New Testament textual attestation. Isn't that wonderful? That we can know, and, and you go, how, to what pers- by, by, by all standards of reason, we have a, a 100%. Okay, 99.99. But it's effectively. So when people say, in, we believe in an inerrant Bible, but only the autographs are inerrant. Yes, but God has given us such an attestation, such a volume of it, such an ancient attestation of different kinds. We have the manuscripts themselves. We have the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. We have the Syriac. We have the Greek. We have the Latin. We have the the Coptic versions of them uh, that we know what the apostles wrote. The very words of the New Testament are certain, certain, in over 99% of the verses. In the remaining 1%, less than 1%, there is no change about the meaning of the verse. There are no doctrines in any doubt or question because of the textual variance. Bible errors. He changed the word order. He misspelled it. Uh, He put Joseph instead of her father or her father instead of Joseph. There are no elements of the story in Jesus in question because of the textual evidence. So here's the conclusion we have. Is our Bible accurate? My friends, the Bibles that we hold in our hands, in, translated into English, contain the books that God intends for us. Uh, next, I'll talk next week about the books, the, the process of canonization. But we have the books that God gave us to be authoritative for our faith and practice. What we read in the New Testament is exact by, by By any standard of human measurement, it is exactly what God inspired the human authors to write. These are the most carefully transmitted and preserved documents from the entirety of ancient history. There are no places where a doctrine or belief of the Christian faith is at stake because of a textual variant. And so when you read your Bible about the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, you may rest your eternal destiny on what you read there. Well, let's go back to Bart Ehrman. 
His conclusion relies on the assumption that God could not preserve and transmit the New Testament text through normal historical processes. The normal historical processes are little monks in damp rooms making copies with candlelight. That's the human process. And there's a lesson here. say It cannot be a divine book because it comes through human processes. But there's an assumption that God cannot work supernaturally through natural processes when, in fact, he does. Providentially overseen by God, Ehrman argues that unless the preservation of the New Testament manuscripts imitates the miracle of divine inspiration, unless it is manifestly, unless an angel were to appear and give it to us, for instance, then it's not divine at all. But he fails to realize that the inspiration of Scripture was a divine miracle using the normal historical processes, just as the transmission of Scripture to us really is a miracle. A normal way, but it's superintended by God. And I hope the result of this time we spent tonight is that you, you know what to say when someone pops the 400,000 uh, variant thing from Bart Ehrman on you. And... Uh, the confidence we may have of the goodness of God through this incredible preservation. Thank the Lord for Egyptian death pits, you know, and for that dry desert climb in Egypt where that community was down there. That's that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Uh, That we can have certainty that what we read in our Greek Bibles and our Hebrew Old Testaments are the words written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I I pray that this would be informative to our folks. Father, I pray that we would not have an attitude of fear when uh, hostile scholars and critics, much trumpeted by the media, say things that seem to undermine our faith. Lord, help us not to be afraid. And I pray that we see tonight there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, Lord, may we even have conversations with those who would use this data. And uh, uh, thank you, Lord, for making us sure not only by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but also by historical processes that we actually hold and we read your word, the very word of God. May you be praised through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.